intimidating. It can be a little spooky or mystical. And we're trying to demystify and de-spook and, uh, and really just bring the beauty of what this book is really all about. Uh, we're reading it, or, or preaching through this series of messages that are really focused on Christ because this book starts out saying it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the Antichrist. It's not the revelation of Babylon. It's not the revelation of the great whore. It's not the revelation of any of these things, the dragon. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is intended for, to, to help the church set its eyes on Christ and all the things that are, that are going to play out in the end times. And um, when, when we read that in mind, it doesn't matter what your, your view of the end times is. If we have the right focus, we're going to get through it in the right way, right? And uh, I want to give a lot of credit today to one of my, my favorite Bible college teacher, probably one of my mentors. He, he was a friend for 20 years and a mentor that I learned a lot from. And a lot of what he imparted into me is going to come through in today's message. A lot of the teachings I've been reading through one of his, the book that he wrote, which is a commentary on the book of Revelation. And uh, just kind of uh, really meriting, chewing on a lot of what he taught in, in the class, personally, through the book. And uh, I, I have lots of, I guess, time in when we talk about studying the book of Revelation. I read stuff by guys like uh, Henry Ironside, Dwight Pentecost, Ryrie, Joseph Seiss, Arthur Pink, m multiple commentaries, different books, uh, and then... Of course, through the late 90s and the early 2000s, there was a uh, real thrust of end-time studies. We, we saw stuff like uh, guys, from guys like, uh, and, even, and this would even go back into the 70s and 80s, uh, Grant Jeffries, uh, Jack Van Impey, John Hagee. We could go through a lot of different folks. And then we saw like the books that came out from Tim LaHaye, Left Behind series, and all these types of things. So there, there's lots of influences, lots of things that... that uh, are, are, and, and many of those resources, very, very helpful, very, very insightful. I've been digging through a lot of those resources uh, over the last three months setting, but the one that has really uh, helped to me uh, see the right perspective of what we really need to focus on in Revelation is this, this uh, teaching that I received from this man, Dr. Van Gill. So a lot of what uh, we're going to hear today came from the foundation that he laid in my life helping me to understand and unpack the book of Revelation. Today we're going to look at Jesus and the church. Jesus and the church. And uh, I, I see the church throughout the book of Revelation. And guess what? Jesus is with his church through everything that transpires. We need to understand that. Now if you want some eschatology, I'm sorry, we're not going to get a lot into eschatology. We're not going to get into mid-trib, pre-trib, post-trib. We're not going to get into uh, post-mill or pre-mill or amillennial. We're not going to get into preterism. We're not going to try to figure out what the uh, 666 stands for, what the mark of the beast is, who the Antichrist is or was. Or uh, We're not going to get into any of that on Sunday mornings here. But next month, we are actually going to dig into eschatology, and uh, that will be on Wednesday nights. And so we invite you to come out for our midweek uh, Bible study at 630 on Wednesday nights next month. If you want to get a little bit, and, and we're, uh, the more that I read, the less dogmatic I become. And the more I realize that the important stuff in this book is really about the person of Jesus Christ, his purpose that's unfolding in this book, and his preeminence. That's really where we need to focus. And if, if like I said, if we can get that stuff right, all of the rest of it, no matter how it plays out, because at the end of the day, no matter what kind of uh, eschatological box we try to force God in and say God's pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib viewpoint, 
when I think honestly a lot of that is supposition. We're reading a lot into scripture if we're going to say dogmatically that this is the viewpoint that you have to fit into. The one thing I know for certain, certain is Jesus is coming back. And he's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. New heaven and earth is coming. And we're going to be a part of the, a kingdom where we rule and reign with him. Amen. That's one thing we know for certain. One thing we know for certain is that he is going to be victorious over all of his enemies. And that's what we see play out in this book. So we can be dogmatic about those things. And then the rest, we need to, we need to be able to have a little flex in our viewpoint. All right. I, I have some strong viewpoints about when we're going to be raptured. Uh, I have lots of strong viewpoints, but I am not dogmatic about those. I'm open because I've seen some very godly men that are very wise and well-studied in Scripture come up with different opinions, right? But the one thing that I think all men of God can agree on, Christ is coming, and he's coming soon. Amen? We've been singing the song since I was a kid. We, we shall see the king. We shall see the king. We shall see the king when he comes, Right? And soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Songs like that, right? And again, you see why they let me preach and not sing. And you might be wondering at the end of this why they let me preach. Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully not. Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 9. And we're kind of bouncing around in different passages in Revelation through this series. But Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. We're going to see Jesus and the church today. And we're going to actually look at all seven of the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And we're going to do that in seven minutes. How many of you believe that? Okay, good. Smart group here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. What, what an introduction. And he's introducing himself in a way that fits the topic of this book. Throughout this book, we will see tribulation, we will see kingdom, and we'll see the necessity for patience. That's the way that John introduces himself to the readers, the hearers of this book, as his brother, their brother, their companion in tribulation, in kingdom, and in patience of Jesus Christ. And I was on the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God. And for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as, a tr as of a trumpet. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I'll say that these are real churches that existed at the time of the writing of this book. These were all, as it says here, in what was called Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. We still know the location of these cities. These are, cities are actually preserved in Turkey as uh, historical sites. <coughs> and so we know the, with, with accuracy where these, the location of these churches are. And Paul is writing from a Greek island called Patmos, which is just west of Turkey in the Aegean Sea. Okay, So these are literal churches, and there's an interpretation that these are ages of the church, and that could very well be, I'm not here to, to affirm or discount that belief system, but he's writing to actual churches that are in existence 
at, at the time. And does that possibly have prophetic implication over ages? It very well could. I'm not, again, here to discount that or to affirm that viewpoint. But I'm just, I want to emphasize these are real churches that existed at the time that this, this uh, book was written. It says, I, I turned in verse 12 to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. And his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like the flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in the furnace, and his voice at the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand the seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the shining sun in its strength, encountering glorified Jesus. The resurrected and glorified Jesus, what an awesome sight. And look what, what happens in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand. Can you imagine the resurrected, glorified Jesus laying his right hand on his beloved disciple, the apostle John. He laid his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. For I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And then here's, an, here's a, this, and really, if we're going to study eschatology, here is a great verse that will help us to interpret things properly. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. There are a lot, there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. This is an important point. If we're going to study eschatology and, and do it uh, justice, there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation, and that's what kind of mystifies it and scares people. But we need to understand this. The major symbols of the book of Revelation are interpreted for us. All of the major symbols that we see in the book of Revelation, the, the writer or, or the Lord revealing this to us reveals what those symbols are. And I think a healthy practice is to avoid the symbols that aren't identified, trying to read things into those. Because we get into trouble. We're, you, you can do that, but we ha you have to do that with an awareness that you're, you're making some assumptions. Right? The, bi the best place, again, herm bi biblical hermeneutic, a, a good principle for studying Scripture. The best place to find answers about questions in the Bible is the Bible. Right? So when it speaks, we can be certain. When it's not speaking and we're reading things into that, we have to realize that we are making assumptions. Right? It, where it's clear, it's clear. And that's where we can speak with certainty. And when we're interpreting other symbols and things, putting our, uh, what we might read into it, or, and a lot of that, that we, we, what can happen is we can put cultural things 
try to read those ends of the Bible. I think an example of that is when we try to make the eagle in the book of Revelation America and the lion Great Britain, the leopard Germany, and the bear Russia. We're reading modern understanding into an ancient text. Could that be true? It could be, but I wouldn't say that with certainty. Does that make sense? But where the Bible is clear, we can speak with real certainty. We, we know that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Why? Because it says right here in the book. We know that the, the, the seven stars are the seven messengers to those seven churches. Why? Because it says it right there in the scripture. It's an important concept, principle, hermeneutic that we need to understand when we study the word of God. When you read through a passage like this, I mean, at least when I do, Jesus, wow. I mean, awe and wonder of this image of Jesus. The white hair, the white beard, the bronze feet, uh, this clad in gold on his chest, a voice that sounds like many waters. I mean, the imagery of, here, of Jesus here is just like awesome. Like, so awesome, like, how can we move on from that, stop focusing on that, start focusing on the Antichrist or Babylon, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not undermining the importance of getting some clarity and context of what Babylon is or the Antichrist is and how this really cosmic conflict is going to play out through human history, but how can we glaze over all, and, and I read over yesterday a document that somebody had prepared, over 90 revelations that are given in this book about who Jesus is. 90 revelations. And we're going to gloss over that and start focusing on who this Antichrist character is. Glorifying the dragon. Glorifying the harlot. No, there's, there's much in this book to glory over Jesus about. And I want, that's, as, as a church, that's what I want to do. I want to help us to center our focus on Christ and our revelation of Jesus Christ. Because if we can get that and we can say, and we're going to, I think this should be abundantly clear by the time we get through this message today. If we set our focus on Jesus, everything else is going to be all right. We're going to see that. Amen. Well, that's introduction. If you like that, you're going to like the message. So I, I see three things, and, and really, honestly, there are more, but three really, really uh, powerful things that, that as we look at Jesus, as we consider Jesus in this passage that we, we learn about him. The first is uh, that Jesus is the one who has preeminence. Second is that Jesus is the one who is triumphant. And the last thing that I recognize in this passage is that Jesus is the one who is present. Jesus is the one who is preeminent, he is the one who is triumphant, and he is the one who is present, okay? So let's start with the first one. Jesus is the one who, is, who has preeminence. I see that in verse 11 where he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He also says that in verse 17, I am the first and the last. It speaks of preeminence. The writer in Colossians, Paul in Colossians writes, to the church at Colossae, he says in verse 15, chapter 1 of verse 15, he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through his blood, uh, through the blood of his cross. I mean, bam. He has preeminence in creation. He has preeminence in redemption. It was the Father's good pleasure that Jesus, Jesus should be the supreme agent of creation and redemption. And we see all throughout the book of Revelation that this is true. There's a, there are two songs, and, and we'll, we'll see that, in the, if not next week, the following week. We'll see these two songs. We'll take a look at these two songs. One, one glorifies him as, and these are songs in Revelation that they sing, that the saints of God are singing. One of them glorifies him as creator. The other glorifies him as savior. See, that, that's why we, we can say this, that Jesus has a double claim on you. He made you. That's his first claim. Every human being sitting in this building, made by a creator God in his image. His, his mark is upon you. You're made and created in the image of God. Every single one of us in this building are made in the image of a God. Think about that, of, of the one true God. We're made in that image. And so God has a claim on us. How many of you think the maker has a claim? Right? You build something, you claim it. Secondly, he put a claim on us with his own blood. Amen? He purchased us with his own blood. The righteous and holy God humbled himself and died on a cross for a sinful, rebellion, rebellious creation. Rebellious, sinful creatures like you and me. He paid a price for us with his blood. So he's got a double claim, a double stake on our lives. And God's given him pre preeminence, as we read in this, both as creator, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, has preeminence in creation and redemption. And that preeminence is evident. That's why it's important that we see this throughout the entire book. We need to see the person of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, and the preeminence of Jesus Christ through the book of Revelation, throughout the book of Revelation. We need to see that. It helps us to understand the purpose of this, this book. It helps us to receive that blessing that the writer talks about in the first chapter. Blessed is he who reads and hears and keeps what's written in this book. You know what? It's important to keep. And we're going to see this as, as we go through this message. Our eyes on Jesus. The relationship with him that affects the way that we live our life. As I've read this, it's become more and more abundantly clear that the things that we need to keep, it, it's really what comes through the fellowship that we have with Christ Jesus. That's what's important. When it talks about keeping what's written in this book, 
It's the things that we receive from Christ through the relationship that we have with him. So number one, Jesus is, is the one in this book who has, in the, in the verses that we've read, the one who has preeminence. Number two, Jesus is the one who is triumphant or victorious. We see this in verse 18. He says, I am the one who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. This is a declaration of victory over the enemies of God, right? Colossians 2.15, the writer says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. In his cross, he put all of his enemies on display as defeated foes. He triumphed in his death, burial, and resurrection. He, he triumphed over all of his enemies and over all of our enemies. Every enemy that we have is defeated because of the cross of Jesus Christ. He is victorious throughout this entire book. He is a victorious God. He is a victorious Savior. He is a victorious Lord. He is a victorious King throughout this entire book. There is conflict, much conflict in this book. As you, as you read from chapters 5 through uh, 18, we're going to see a, a, a conflict between dark and light. Between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. By the way, light, when we talk about the kingdom of light, that word light is truth. And darkness could be interpreted foolishness. The kingdoms of this world in reality are foolish. To accept the views, the lifestyles, what everything, the philosophy that this world is trying to force upon it, ultimately it is foolishness. Just look at the stuff that they're propagating through legislation, through school boards, through uh, social media, through protests, you name it. This world system is trying to cram its foolishness upon the human soul. But at the entrance of the word of God, light truth, perspective, right? We're in a conflict. But Jesus has been given preeminence and he's been given victory. He is preeminent and he is the victor. And the last point that I had in, in this kind of overview of the, what we read in our text today is that Jesus is the one who is present, and I want, to take some untime, I want to take some time to unpack this one. We see it in verse 13 when it says that he's in the midst of the seven lampstands. What does that mean? Well, again, going back to verse 20, it tells us the lampstands, which you saw, speaking to John, were the seven churches. Jesus is, declare, is declared in, in this 13th verse to be the one in the midst of the seven lampstands. He's the one who is present in the church. He's president in every single one of those seven churches, and we're going to look at these seven churches briefly here. He's present. I want to say that Jesus is present at Return Church today. He's in our midst. He's present, and everywhere we see the church in the book of Revelation, Jesus is present. This is vital. This is important. Jesus is present. We see this in the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2, Verse 3, every single one of these seven churches, there is a revelation of who Christ is to this church. We're going to look at this. 
There's also a problem. Every one of these churches has some kind of a problem. Every one of them, all seven of the churches, Jesus identifies a problem, something, a weakness, a fault, uh, a place where they have fallen back. He, he sees that. There, how many of you know that we have problems here at Return Church from time to time? That we are humans that tend to drift from the path that God has set us on, and we get off course, and that causes problems, right? And God wants to bring us on path. That's what he's doing through these admonitions to these seven churches. He's trying to set them all seven back on a right course. And there's purpose in it. There's design in it. There's restoration of the purposes of God in all seven of these things. We're going to see this by the time we're done here. Number one is the church of Ephesus. And the presentation of Jesus here is the one who holds seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. In other words, he's the one who is present Right? And the problem that's identified here, I'm not going to read through all the verses, but the problem that's identified with the, with the church of Ephesus, go and study this. This is, by the way, this is a message that you need to take and listen to over and over again and get into these, these passages that I'm, I'm just kind of passing quickly through and dig down into them. I'm going to tell you, this book will come alive to you if you would just do that with this, with this one message. Listen to it three or four times, write down the passages, write down some of the keys that we're giving here, and it will help you to understand this book and give you clarity. So the problem is that they've fallen out of love. You've lost your first love. It's, it's a loss of intimacy. Jesus is presented as the one who is present, yet they are not intimate with him. The relationship has waned. Here's the promise to those who overcome this problem. And, and they will see this pattern in all seven of these churches. There's a presentation of Jesus, there's a promise that needs to overcome, be overcome, and there is a, pre a promise to everybody who does overcome that problem. And the, problem, the, the promise to those who overcome this uh, love loss, this loss of intimacy, he says, to him that overcome I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. If we'll get back into relationship, with Jesus. We eat the fruit from the tree of paradise. That's the promise. It's beautiful. And, and we're going to go somewhere with that in just a minute. And the second church is Smyrna. And the presentation of Jesus is he's the first and the last who was dead and has come, come to, came, came back to life. The, the problem that's identified here is fear. There's rising opposition, there is persecution that, that's coming to this church, and there's fear that's identified. Jesus addresses it. And, and by the way, this is the way of God. Whenever God rebukes us, he also loves us and affirms us. He points out problems in all of these churches, but he also speaks about what they're doing well. Similar to what we saw with, remember last year when we studied Philippians and Paul, Paul was dealing with issues in the church. He was rebuking in particular these two ladies that were causing division in the church. But he, he, he said, look, these, these ladies are our, our fellow, fellow laborers in the gospel. And their names are written in the Lamb books, Lamb's Book of Life. So he, he corrects them, but he affirms them as he's bringing the correction. Right? It's a healthy, very healthy way, way to do it. So this fear is the problem. The presentation of Jesus is the first and the last who was dead and came to life. If, if Jesus has conquered death, do you think that we really need to fear death? The way that we overcome that fear is by seeing Jesus, the one who has overcome death, right? And the promise to those who overcome, they shall not be hurt by the second death. 
You see how these things are all fitting together. Okay, next, moving on to Pergamos. The presentation of Jesus as he who has the, two, the sharp two-edged sword that proceeds out of his mouth, which is what? The word of God. The problem is false words, bad doctrine, which is producing a bad behavior. Because what we, what we believe determines the way that we're going to live our life. They're believing doctrines of Nicolaitans, and, and it doesn't tell us in scriptures, historically speaking, uh, this is probably referring to Nicholas, who was a, a, a deacon who had become an apostate. He'd fallen away from faith and went into Gnosticism. This is what history would, would tell us. And so they were starting to uh, buy into Gnosticism and worshiping Balaam. Right? So the, the Lord's rebuking him. Hey, look. You can't worship me and worship the other gods. You can't, go, you can't believe my word and the word of these other uh, ideologies. Right? Bad doctrine. How do we overcome that? By seeing Jesus as the true word of God, the two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth. That's the way we overcome bad doctrine. Looking to the word of God. And the promise to him who overcomes, I will give him of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. If, if you'll look to Jesus, who has the two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth, turn away from the bad doctrine, you'll receive the pure manna, the pure word that comes from God. That's the promise. The next church is, is Thyatira, where Jesus is presented as the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. This, the same wording was used and in the first chapter, the passage that we read as our opening text. And it says that this view that he has of Jesus, he has feet of brass as though they had been refined in the fire. We've got, here's the, here's the imagery here. We've got clay feet, dirty, and coming into contact with this world every single day. He has bronze feet who, that have been purified. All of the dross of this world has been burnt off. All of the filth and dirt of this world has been burnt, and he's standing there with bronze feet, pure bronze. Right? That's the presentation of Jesus. What, what's the problem? False deeds. The corruption of Jezebel. They had polluted themselves. The image of Jesus, the refiner. Right? What's the promise? He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with an iron rod, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. As I, <coughs> excuse me, as I also have received from my Father, I will give him the morning star. The promise is if we overcome the corruption of this world, we will rule over this world. Next church is the church of Sardis. The presentation of Jesus here is these things, says he who has the seven spirits of God. And the seven stars. This is speaking of the Holy Spirit of God. It's the same image that we, imagery that we see in the initial introduction to this book. The first six verses of the first chapter. It talks about the seven star, uh, spirits that are before the throne of God. And by the way, this, this book, Revelation, is stamped with the number seven. It's all over that. If you want to know why, come see us Wednesday nights next month. We'll get into it. 
But these things say the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This is the presentation of Jesus. What's the problem? I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive. And this is, by the way, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Should have been given these um, addresses, but you can read through these. They're all in the, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. The problem is, I, I know your works, that you have a name, that you live, but you are dead. The problem is spiritual sleep. They are a dead church. What do they need? They need the Spirit of God, right? If they'll encounter the Spirit of God, it'll bring them back to life, and they'll overcome their deadness. And for he who overcomes, and, and uh, where am I? He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That's the promise. We're almost done with these seven churches. We've got two more. Philadelphia is in chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. The presentation of Jesus here is he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. The problem here that he, he addresses is discouragement, the desire to quit, indifference. The promise To those who overcome, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God, unmovable, unshakable, and he will go out no more. I will write on him the name of God and the name of the city of God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. The problem is indifference. The presentation of Jesus is the one who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. He opens doors and closes doors, and that's speaking of authority. Talks about the key of of David in the Old Testament. It was actually, it, it was basically the key that was worn around the neck of David's chief of staff. And he gave him, it was it was basically a master key that would open any any door. That's the picture. Jesus has authority. If we get a view of that, we won't be indifferent about things. We won't look at these doctrines of demons that are being forced on our society and be indifferent about it. Because we, re- we realize we have authority to do something about it. I, I would encourage somebody in this building, run for city council. Stop griping and complaining about all the Garbage we see going on in our culture. Get on city council. Get on the school board. You've been given authority to do something about it. Come on. Yeah, come on. Let's do it. Our own Captain Hall who sits out there. This, I remember this conversation over two years ago I had with him. He said, you know what? Why all this stuff happens in our culture is because our government's letting it. And the reason that's happening is because Christians aren't running for political office. That's, from, that's, that's coming from our, our captain of our police department here. That's a reality. We have been given authority. We need to do something about what's going on in our culture and stop griping and complaining about it. Those of you who were at our workshop know what I'm talking about here. No complaining until you're ready to take action. Stop complaining about politics until you're ready to run for office. Stop complaining about it and do something about it. Amen? The one who has all authority backs you. Stop being indifferent. Do something about it. 
Laodicean churches in, in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. The presentation of Jesus is, is the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Here, here's the indictment against this Laodicean church. It's, it's self-enthronement. They're putting themselves in the place of God. He says, you keep saying that I say when I didn't say. You're putting words in my mouth. You're enthroning your opinion, your ideology, and claiming that I'm the one who instituted it, and I didn't. Stop it. I am the amen. I am the faithful and true witness, and you're the one who's spewing lies right now. Cut it out, right? The revelation of Jesus, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. The indictment, self-enthronement. The promise to those who overcome this issue of self-enthronement, those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat on, with my father on his throne. Right? We're trying to exalt ourselves on a throne by spewing out these opinions that we have. And if you, if he says, if you'll stop and align yourself with what I'm actually saying, you'll sit on a throne with me and rule. So this is what the book of Revelation does. It reveals Christ to his church so that his church will overcome. In all seven of these, there's a pattern. How, how do we overcome? There's three things that are given to the, these seven churches. He says, remember. Right? Remember your first love. Remember. Remember. And what do we need to remember? We need to remember who Jesus is. We need to remember our God and how he has changed us and established us. We need to remember that. That's the first step. The second step that's given to all seven of these churches is to repent. To repent. The, the word literally means not, not just to apologize, but to have a change of mind that changes your behavior. Change the way you're thinking about this thing. You've been thinking about it in your own mindsets. You, and, and, and literally, the, the reason that they need, they need to remember is because they have, they, they have fallen. They, and the, the idea of fallen here is not that they have, have, have uh, lost salvation or anything like that. It's that they have slowly drifted away, not by conscious decision, just by neglect, have drifted away from remembering who Jesus is and who they are as a result. And so they started living in a way that isn't consistent with who God called them to be. So remember your God. Let that change your thinking. Repent. Metanoia. It means to have a second thought. Have you ever had a conversation? You didn't quite know how to respond, but driving home, you thought if I would have just said that, it would have worked it out. Right? That's a second thought. It's a second thought that reveals the error of your first thought. That's what this word metanoia means. That's what it means to repent. It's a change in the... In, <coughs> Excuse me, I don't have COVID, I've got allergies, just so you know. It's a change in the way we think because we realize it doesn't line up with what God has said. And then the last part of it comes out of that. He says, remember, repent, and then he tells these seven churches to redo. Go back and do your first works. And it's not a works-based message. What, what he's really saying is if you come back to the place of intimacy, the change that you had received from Jesus will begin to take effect in you again and you'll begin to change the way that you're living your life. 
It's about intimacy. It's about intimacy with the Lord. It's about keeping our eyes on Jesus. That's really honestly what this entire book, the book of Revelation, is about. It's what it's encouraging us to do, to keep our eyes on Jesus. So I, I want to just do a recap of these seven churches and think about this. This is what was promised to those seven churches. Look at what was promised to those who overcome. Number one, you will eat from the tree of life. Number two, no second death. Number three, hidden manna and a new name. Number four, you will exercise authority. Number five, you'll obtain an identity. Number six, you're marked by God's name. And number seven, you will sit on a throne with Christ. I want to suggest to you that what has just happened is Christ has just brought the church back from everything that Adam lost. All seven of these things, we talked about the, the, the forfeited inheritance last week. All seven of these things are a part of that forfeited inheritance. And this is Christ restoring his church back to the place where he intends for it to be. And we, we're going to see the beauty and the full culmination of this in chapters 21 and 22. Paradise on planet earth and the people of God ruling and reigning with Christ. That's what we're going to see. In Revelation chapter 4, so that, that's introduction, chapters 1 and then 2 and 3, just really introduction and what God, his purpose for the church is. And through chapter 4 through 18, we see struggles between darkness and light, between the dragon and his armies and the saints of God. And you know what? There are all kinds of viewpoints of when exactly these events transpire. There's a clue that and we read over it already. Uh, I'm not going to go back to it just for the sake of time, but there's a clue. He said, write about the things which you have seen, which are, and the things which are to come. I don't think I have a perfect outline. I don't know if anybody has a perfect outline of how that would um, uh, kind of set the picture of the book of Revelation, but I know that some of these things that are written about in this book are things that have already happened. Some of them are things that were happening in John's time. And some of them were for the future. And again, it doesn't matter which one of your viewpoints, whether you're post-mo, pre-mo, and if you don't understand these terminologies, come next month in Wednesday nights. I love plugging that class. It, but it, it doesn't matter which one of those viewpoints you hold to. If you understand, this is really about a revelation of Jesus. And if I can get a glimpse of Jesus... Whether I have to go through those things or not, whether I'm going to rapture out of here before tribulation or during tribulation or after tribulation, it doesn't matter because my eyes are set on Jesus and however he decides for it to fold out, I'm going to be okay. Does that make sense? Because here's the ultimate result. Revelation 19, verse 11 through 21. I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and, his head, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he would strike the nations. And, he, and, and I believe it's literally going to be the declaration of his word that is going to lay all of his enemies flat. 
It's not going to be machine guns, swords, nuclear bombs. Jesus will speak the word like he did in the garden when he simply said, I am. And those Rome, that Roman centurion that came to, to, to arrest him fell on their faces. The declared word of God is going to defeat all of his enemies. Out of his mouth goes that sharp two-edged sword. He will strike the nations. He himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the wine presses of the fierceness of the wrath of, of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. <clears throat> that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the captains and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses of those who sat on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured. The beast was captured. We don't have to worry about the beast. He's going to be captured and defeated, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his enemy, Im, image. I'm sorry. These, these two were cast alive into the lake of, of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on his horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. What's the point? Yep, there's going to be all kinds of conflict. But he has preeminence. And he is victorious. And he is present. The assignment is not for us to figure out who the Antichrist is. It's not try, to try to figure out 88 reasons why he was supposed to come back in 1988. That's not the assignment. You want to know the assignment? Why does all this matter? Everything that we've talked about, why does it matter? It matters because he's preeminent in all things. He is victorious. And he is present. He gave us our assignment in Matthew 28. Verse 19 and 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, to observe all things that I have commanded you. And you know what? You might experience some conflict. Persecution might arise. You might have a face-off with the devil. You might be a part of Armageddon. None of us can say with certainty that we know without a doubt how everything's going to play out. We, we're going to face some challenges on this. Jesus promised us that. Just go and make disciples. And then here's the promise, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, to the end of it all. Whether he raptures us before tribulation, in the middle of tribulation, after tribulation, he's with us to the end. So just be about doing what he's told you to do. 
go and preach the gospel, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the fact that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's pouring his spirit out on all flesh, and he's going to have victory over every single one of his enemies. Preach this gospel and implore everybody who will to come into the kingdom of God. Amen? We don't have to worry about the conflict. We don't have to worry about whether we're going to have to suffer, whether we might die for it. All we've got to do is be obedient to do what he's told us to do and know that he has preeminence in all things. He is victorious and he is with us. This wasn't in my notes. I, in the last minutes before coming out of my office today, I scribbled this one on here. Revelation 17, 14. These will make war with the Lamb of God. Talking about the ten, be- uh, the ten heads that gave power to the beast. They will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Amen. Church, if we'll get our eyes on Jesus, we'll be a part of that great army that's with him when he defeats the, 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 the beast and the ten heads and the dragon, and we'll be called, called, chosen, and faithful. When it's all said and done, I want to stand and say that I am called, chosen, and faithful. I want him to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if your eschatology, if you can dot all your I's and cross all your T's, and you have all of your doctrine in perfect order. Will you stand for Jesus when the pressure comes, when the enemy raises his ugly mouth and snares his teeth at you? Will you stand and do what Jesus said to do because your eyes are fixed on him and you are so in love with him, you can't think of anything? other option. That's what the purpose of the book of Revelation is for. Blessed is he who hears and reads and keeps what is in this book. Let's keep the revelation of Jesus. Because if we'll keep the revelation of Jesus, it'll keep us. Amen. Let's stand together. I don't know how to end this, but other than to say, if you can't look at this world and figure out that something's wrong, take your glasses off and clean them. Living in this world, if I don't have that hope, I have no hope. This world is a heinous mess. I've got hope one day that a new heaven and a new earth is coming. That Jerusalem is going to come down, the new Jerusalem is going to come down over the city of God. And he's going to set his throne up and he's going to reign. And we're going to reign with him. That's the hope that I have. And without Christ, without his salvation, without the blood that he shed on the cross, without his death, burial, and resurrection, I have nothing. I've put all of my, I've staked my entire life on that, the hope of the gospel. My faith is in him. Not in my good works. Not that my doctrine is all sorted. Been trying to sort it for 26 years and doesn't seem like I'm even close. I have no clue. You're going to come to my eschatology class next month. Let me just tell you right now, I have no clue who the Antichrist is. 
Not a clue. But I know who Jesus is. And I know he's going he's gonna to whip that old antichrist. He's victorious. Amen? Listen, if you don't know Jesus, you need to know him. I'm going to invite you to come down to the altar right now. I want my wife to sing. And if you need to know Jesus, if you want to begin a relationship with Jesus today, I would love to pray with you in this altar today.